0: Ideally, the Supreme Court is an apolitical body. And that idea was invoked by President Obama last month when he said that the court, quote, is supposed to be above politics, not an extension of politics. That was after Republicans in Congress opposed his appointment of Merrick Garland to fill the vacancy left when Antonin Scalia died. But has the court ever been nonpartisan in practice? Is it even possible for the nine justices to steer clear of politics? On this week's Please Explain, we're looking into that with Jeffrey Tubin, CNN's senior legal analyst and a staff writer at The New Yorker, and Nina Totenberg, NPR's legal affairs correspondent. Welcome back to our show. Hi, Hi Leonard.
1: You and missed the greatest segue, Leonard. You know, the the Gallery is where the Klimt paintings are, and that case had to go all the way to the Supreme Court before they got them back from Austria.
0: And <laughs> while, we're we, we you, knew, while we're interrupting We knew that. You, we That was a very subtle subtext. Leonard, right? can
2: I just say in front of every, in your audience what an honor and pleasure it is to appear with Nina Totenberg. You know, Nina <laughs> Nina is the dean now of the... Uh, the certainly the broadcast and, and radio uh, press corps. Everybody stands up when the justices come in. But we're, we're close to the time when everybody stands up when Nina walks in to the Supreme Court. <laughs>
0: we're like a, another year or two when we're there. I am the dean, but that only means yeah.
1: I've been doing this a long time. <laughs> well,
0: I should mention that our audience is invited to join in the conversation. You can call us at 212-433-9692 or leave a comment on our show page at WNYC.org slash Lopate or you can find us on Facebook or Twitter where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. So let's get right to it. Has the Supreme Court or any part of the federal judiciary for that matter ever really been truly apolitical?
2: No, and it's mostly been awful politically. Uh, When you think about the history of the Supreme Court in broad Terms. You know, John Marshall was the great chief justice in the early days of the court. He died in the 1830s. Basically, from the 1830s until the 1950s, the Supreme Court did almost nothing good uh and um it, it, since then it, it's been a, it's been a mixed bag but you know when you consider the kinds of issues that the supreme court deals with you know does the constitution protect a woman's right to choose an abortion may a university consider race and admissions those are as much political questions as they are legal questions and that's how the court necessarily has to approach them
1: well i don't actually 100% agree with jeffrey i mean his I think his broad view of you know Chief Justice Marshall as the great Chief Justice um, starting us off as a country with a Supreme Court that was amazingly actually a political and and he really was a a genius at avoiding some of the pitfalls that we see uh, Today and a lot of the things the court does, but, but Nina, he let, let, let her finish. No, okay. I feel but, like
0: <laughs> I feel like this is Bernie and Hillary. Go ahead. But
1: <laughs> but but um, there is a difference between partisan and political. They are not always the same. And I, when I first started covering the court in the basically the late '60s, early '70s. The court was very divided about some issues, like, like the criminal law, a lot of issues, but not all of them, and certainly not all issues, and certainly not all issues depending on who appointed them. And it was really quite different from the much more polarized court we see today.
0: Well, when you say there's a difference between partisan and political, We often use those words interchangeably. Yeah, I I was wondering, Nina, what What do you mean mean by by that? that?
1: Well, partisan is uh, you do things because you're a Republican or a Democrat. You have views that are very uh, attuned to what the, the party of the president who appointed you. And history is full of people who disappointed the presidents who appointed them. It isn't that full of them at the moment, but prior to now, it was very full of them. And you know, I I think that uh, uh, the court right now is a, is is quite riven on the the issues that Jeff mentioned. But even in on those, it isn't always divided along party lines.
2: Well, let let me just quarrel with a a little bit of what what you said, Nina. You, you said uh you know partisanship means you you act because you you sort of want to help one side or another i don't think. Um, you know the fact that we have four Democrats and four Republicans. They are acting because they want to help the Democrats or Republicans. I think they believe that the Constitution mandates a view of the a view of their work that pushes them in one direction or another. So I don't I don't think they are sitting there thinking, well, I just want to you know screw the Republicans. But they are sitting there thinking, I am the kind of person who believes that Obamacare is constitutional and therefore will vote accordingly.
0: Well let's go back in history of course the founding fathers originally opposed the concept of political parties for all three branches of government but what when they established the federal judiciary what kind of system did they envision did they hope that it was going to be totally above the political fray. Well,
2: one of the one of the interesting things about the Constitution is if you look at just at the length of the first three articles of the Constitution. Article one, which is the powers of the legislature, is a very long, a very long list. Article two, which is the powers of the president, is a lengthy but not as lengthy list. And Article three is very very short. And and I think it is it is somewhat ambiguous precisely the contours of what they thought of of the uh, of the judicial branch uh, Alexander Hamilton who you may know there's a musical about him now mm-hmm. he's a famous guy <laughs> um, he in the Federalist get, Papers get, 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 get very hard
1: I was about uh, to say I, Jeffrey it's, it depends which Federalist <laughs> Papers you read <laughs> well, that, right
2: that's true but but <laughs> Hamilton wrote. Um, I, I forgot which number it is, where he did talk about uh, how important the judiciary would mm-hmm. be. But that wasn't by no means uh, universally understood by the framers. And it really took John Marshall, the great chief justice, to establish, right. most famously in Mar- Marbury versus Madison, that the Supreme Court has the last word on it. Well,
0: that. that was 1803, and uh, that case established judicial review, but it was highly controversial. Was it politically controversial at the time? Uh, let I Nina? wasn't there.
2: Yeah, Nina's <laughs> been covering the court for a long time, but not there. I wasn't long. there. Okay. Uh, well,
1: yeah, yeah, it was. Um, I mean,
0: we, we had Thomas Jefferson and James Madison opposed to judicial. It
1: order. was, but it wasn't because he did it in such a way that it didn't cause the kind of furor that, that it could have.
2: Right. I mean, the the thing, and again, it it, it gets a little esoteric when you talk about the facts of the case, but by establishing judicial review, he did not upset the particular apple cart that was before him. It was an extremely artful decision legally, but also politically. And
0: Mm -hmm. as a consequence, in practice, how much of federal law is shaped and written by the Supreme
1: Court? Well, it's not written by them. They interpret it. Mm -hmm. I mean, they interpret statutes and... There they're they're interpreting words that are enacted by Congress and are are the law, and they're trying to figure out what Congress meant, and if, if they get it wrong, Congress can change it. Or they interpret the words of the Constitution and... If Congress thinks they got it wrong, Congress can't do anything about it except pass a constitutional amendment, which is extremely difficult, and Congress can't even do that by itself.
0: But aren't SCOTUS majority decisions binding law? Well, it depends. I mean,
2: Nina makes an important point that I think most people are not aware of, which is – uh, the distinction between statutory decisions and constitutional decisions. Most of what the Supreme Court does, or at least a lot of it, is mm-hmm. statutory interpretation. And they say that um, a, a, a Title Seven of the um, Civil Rights Act says uh, that, that uh, certain um, sex discrimination cases, you have to prove X, Y, and Z. Well, there was a decision like that um, in the Lily Ledbetter case Shortly before President Obama took office, Um, uh, Justice Ginsburg wrote a dissenting opinion saying Congress should change the law so that it's clear this decision uh, is incorrect. Congress she wrote a dissent. A dissent, right? She wrote a
1: dissent that said these guys have it wrong. It's very damaging to um, the ability of women and other minorities to bring complaints. And minorities to bring complaints, and Congress should make that clear so these bozos know it. That's basically what and, she and, and said.
0: Did she use the word bozo? Well, it, it, <laughs> no. it, almost in so
2: many words, yes. But she invited Congress to clarify the law, and Congress did. The Constitution had nothing to do with it. When you get to decisions like Roe v.ersus Wade, um, that is a decision. That says the Constitution bars states from prohibiting abortion. There's nothing Congress or any state can can do about that because the Constitution is the supreme law of the land.
0: My guests, are Jeffrey Tubin and Nina Totenberg, were talking about the Supreme Court and just how political it has been throughout its history. On today's Please Explain segment, this is WNYC, WNYC.org I'm Leonard Lopate. One of the, the none of the federal judges are elected, but many state and local judges are. What are the advantages and disadvantages of having an entirely appointed judiciary? Nina,
1: well, the advantage is that if this is the last word, it's an it's not determined by campaigns and. Money. It's determined by the best judgment of judges deciding what the law is. You may say it's political or not, but by political, I think you mean much more ideological than partisan. Um, it, when you have campaigns, very complicated decisions are reduced these days into 30 second ads uh, that make Some judges look like they're um, um, handmaidens to hardened criminals. And uh, they're extremely partisan campaigns. And the amount of money being spent on them by special interests is shooting up astronomically in states that have elections, which I think is the majority of states. Yeah, over 30. Yeah, over 30. And, you know, for those of us who believe in in some sense of apolitical justice— that's not. I, I. I. think we think that that's not the wisest way to run a government. But the counter argument is that people have the right to make judges accountable; that they should be accountable for their
2: Just, decisions. Justice uh, O'Connor, in retirement, one of the causes she has embraced and spoken out on is an appointive judiciary rather than an elected judiciary for just the reasons that Nina described that you know these campaigns where judges have to raise money and then they distort each other's positions uh... really coarsens the judiciary attracts the wrong kind of judges that uh, it is certainly Justice O'Connor's view, and uh, I would think most people feel like the federal judiciary, with ev- whatever its problems, it, we are all very fortunate it's a point of not elected.
0: But politics enters here as well. Don't many federal judgeships remain open because Congress has refused to fill them? Doesn't that make the courts I think political?
1: Fer- I think they're 35 at the moment, largely because the majority leader, Senator McConnell, is of the view that we're in the last year of a presidency, and the president shouldn't get any judges. And that's been true even in states where there are two Republicans who have recommended the person who is being n- nominated by the president. Um, this is a fight that has devolved. Uh, it was always true that in the last few months of a presidency, the president in most cases couldn't get a judge through after June June of, or July of his last term. But when I first started covering the courts, this was a much more organized kind of thing. And and judges, by and large, to the lower courts, got confirmed with relative ease unless there was some particular problem, really particular problem with a particular judge. And for every time that one party or the other drags its feet or comes up with a new way to block judgeship so that it, the next, the next step is worse and worse and worse, and so now we're in a situation where federal district judges, who are trial judges and had never that had never been an issue, they they're just simply not getting a vote, not getting a hearing, whatever, because they happen to be nominated by a Democratic what? president. And now you see what's happening with the Garland nomination, and I guarantee you, as the president did in his speech at the University of Chicago that if the Republicans succeed in this, it will only get worse the next time there's a Republican president who wants to put somebody on the Supreme Court and there'll be some reason the Democrats come up with why they shouldn't vote on it also. The
2: the, the w- What's happening, as Nina very accurately described, is that the extreme polarization that we are so familiar with in Congress has simply transferred over to the judicial appointments process so that there is um, uh, uh, has been virtually a blockade in the Senate since uh, the the Senate went Republican in the 2014 midterm but the elections. But Republicans
0: say this all began with Robert Bork. Well, the,
2: the, you Could, know, is this, this, is it really it, that it, really it, the beginning? It's a little like uh, the Middle East in that um, <laughs> you y- you can say that who you started it. No, you started yeah. it with the, you know the first temple in Jerusalem. I mean, there there is. um FDR
0: tried to sack the court. Yeah, uh, there,
2: there, there it really does go back almost that far. And um, you know it, it is true that in 1987, when Robert Bork was nominated, um, there was a free-flowing political debate about whether he was suitable for the court, and it wasn't about his integrity or his qualifications; it was about his views. Um, I actually think that that's a good reason to have a, to have a debate. But but uh, Republicans have been bitter about that; they've been bitter about the rejection.
0: But isn't uh, advice and consent? What the Congress is supposed to do that would be part of the process
2: well yes, but um, the the question of on what basis do you have advice advice and consent the the party in power the president's power party always tries to make these debates simply about competence and integrity uh, whereas the party out of power says no 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 it's not just about competence and integrity it's about whether you will Uh, guarantee a Second Amendment right to bear firearms or, conversely, to overturn Citizens United. The litmus test. That's right. And, you know, I'm actually sort of pro-litmus test, frankly.
1: And if you look at the broad spectrum of American history, what you can see is that after the failed court packing plan, we had an extraordinary period which um, one might have hoped would have continued, but it was a half century or more in which presidents appointed people to the court, and and the Senate approved them, they both did the, it based largely on qualifications and some affinity for a particular point of view by the president. But, you know, I mean, uh, William Brennan, who was the court's most, probably most liberal member um, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, um, he was appointed by President Eisenhower. And Eisenhower basically said, I want somebody who's a Democrat, who's Catholic, and from a northeastern state, and who's a well-regarded person. And, well, he got it, but he got more than he bargained for. (laughs) And And nobody ever really looked into what people's views were. That was considered um, something of a faux pas.
0: But once they were on the court, wasn't there a move to impeach William Douglas?
1: But not when, because of his views, partly because of his views, but he kept yeah that never really I mean,
2: the, the the of Warren movement, which was actually was i think stronger than yeah. than the douglas business was was entirely based on on uh, his his attempts to desegregate.
0: Uh, now the, he was the also South. a Republican who I mean uh, nominated by a Republican and then disappointed Eisenhower. many but, people of the party and correct. he'd been a Republican governor uh, yes
2: and a and a vice presidential candidate I mean he, and he he's,
1: was you know if you look at his record it's really interesting when I said you know there was there were these people were not as polarized as they are now if yes he is considered a you know a great liberal chief justice but there were many things he was conservative about if you look back. He wrote the early flag burning cases upholding laws against flag burning. He wrote the case, I think he wrote it, but he certainly was part of the majority that said you could automatically excuse women from jury service. Hmm. So you know, uh, it was it was a different kind of coalition in those days.
0: I have to take a little break, but we'll come back with more. My guests are Nina Totenberg, who's NPR's legal affairs correspondent, and Jeffrey Toobin, who is a staff writer at The New Yorker and also CNN's senior legal analyst and author of a forthcoming book called American Heiress, The Wild Saga of the Kidnapping Crimes and Trial of Patty Hearst. You can give us a call, 212-433-9692. Write to us on our show page at WNYC.org on Facebook or Twitter, where handle is at Leonard Lopez. We're back with Nina Totenberg, NPR's legal affairs correspondent, and Jeffrey Tubin. New Yorker staff writer and CNN senior legal analyst. We're talking about the Supreme Court and politics on today's. Please explain uh, how we often hear about uh, the the swing vote on the court. Uh, is that something that ha- has always been there?
2: No, I, not yeah. always. It depends mm-hmm. on you know ha- how the court is ideologically. You know they they're. they're uh, um, in, in the late 60s, uh, there were seven liberals on the court, so there really wasn't necessarily a swing vote, at least on, on, on most, ca- most cases, but once Richard Nixon had four appointees to the court, you did generally have uh, a swing vote, and it was Lewis Powell for a while, then it was Sandra Day O'Connor, and uh, now, uh, very, very dramatically, at least before Justice Scalia's death, uh, Anthony, Anthony Kennedy has, has controlled the outcome of so many, so many cases.
0: Most people have strong opinions about a number of high-profile cases from the past few decades, which uh, involve swing votes, Roe v. Wade, Citizens United, Bush v. Gore. Um, What did the debate uh, around 19th-century cases like Dred Scott or Plessy v. Ferguson look like?
2: Well, it certainly wasn't like today. You didn't have Supreme Court appointments uh, battlegrounds over individual cases the way they are now I And mean, th- mm-hmm. there have been times, it's sort of ebb and flowed over history, how much Supreme Court appointments were controversial there was a justice rejected in 1920 uh, but then there were a long series of essentially unopposed uh And why was he rejected? I believe it was Nina, I, I, I forgot I his name it was, name. It was it, union um, having something to it do it was with the anti-union he, activity he was viewed
1: it? as anti-labor and actually as it turned out he really wasn't but um, But he, you know, it was one of those times when um, a very powerful, then very powerful interest group, which was labor, uh, managed to sabotage his nomination. Um, These things are very complicated, or at least I, I actually think they're much starker now, because while there are cases in which, for example, Justice Kennedy was not the swing vote, most of the very big sort of social issue cases, he was the swing vote and is the swing vote at, you know, at the moment, in, for example, still in the affirmative action case because Justice Kagan is actually recused from that case. So it's, it's, it is an uneven ju- number of justices, and it's unlikely uh, to be a 4-4 tie. So <laughs> <But laughs> in no way, de- it could be a 4-4 tie.
0: Aren't most decisions actually majority decisions?
1: Most decisions are majority decisions because you have a nine-justice
0: they have no, presid- no. You, you mean, well, They have to be majority
1: decisions. You mean? Well, they don't have to be. I think you're yeah. asking unanimous. I, mean, I meant unanimous. Yeah, exactly. Oh, mean, I'm, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm doing a
2: little simultaneous yeah, thank translation you. here for the. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, no, no, no.
1: I don't know if I don't know if most of them are unanimous. No, but, but I, a lot of them are. A lot of them. And they are. They are because nobody outside of the legal profession really cares about. Right.
2: And and I think you do make a make a point that if I miss exactly is that you know not everything at the court is deeply political. I, I think roughly half or a little more than half are are unanimous or eight to one or something like that. I mean, a lot of it is very sort of technical stuff. But once you get into the high profile cases that, that we are also familiar with, that's when the Democrats and Republicans really split on the court as predicted.
1: But not always. Not even always. Na- even now, not always. So that you had this example last week where Justice Ginsburg wrote uh, a decision about the one person, one vote Um, case, Mm -hmm. and it was actually um, a unanimous vote with six of the justices together basically saying you have to divide up districts according to population, not according to who's eligible to vote. And I think that issue now is gone. It's finished, Uh, because it's just going to be too costly for somebody to bring one more case on this, which you technically could, but apparently would lose. And and so... uh, And there have been search cases, for example, on whether or not you could uh, place a, um, what do you call it, a tracker thing on a car of a suspect without a warrant. And the court was, as I recall... Helping on this, the yes, Jones it was, case it was uh, yes, unanimous. It was
2: unanimous. There were some different opinions, but the the result was unanimous. Same thing with searches of cell phones. Actually, on on where the court was pretty much unanimous that you need a warrant mm-hmm. to, to to search someone's cell phone. I mean, it is true that there are some issues where the court does not break down on political lines.
0: And Brown versus Board of Education was unanimous. Well, but that now you're well, that a took a lot of work. Well, yeah, well, let's I, go I, back I, a bit I mean, because I, again, talk about politics. Uh, FDR tried to stack the court because of political reasons. Well, because well, they, were they were striking, striking down, down his whole program. Yeah, right, yes. The and whole New Deal program. Wasn't that just similar to the situation we see today?
2: I mean, it, it is similar in the sense that presidents have priorities hmm. that can be obstructed or, or even overturned by... Presidential by Supreme Court action. I mean, look what what might have happened if the two uh, Obamacare cases had gone the other way. The central achievement of Barack Obama's presidency uh, might have turned to dust. So, I mean, you, the, you can see why presidents care deeply about why uh, who's on well, the court and what they and do. And let's
1: make clear to people uh, who are not history buffs of the Supreme Court, that when FDR tried to stack the court, he didn't try to fill the court vacancies with people who uh, he thought would agree with him. He tried to expand the number of seats on the Supreme Court. And he failed uh, royally in that effort, not just among Republicans, but among Democrats. And that led to this period of relative quiescence. Once he got seats to fill. And he I think he had eight or nine eight. seats. I don't uh, remember yeah, which.
2: Nine.
1: Eight seats he eventually filled. The people who were blocking his, uh, his New Deal program from becoming law were no longer on the court, and it was safe. And that was the critical issue of the day. Will you defer to Congress in the in economic regulation so that presidents and congresses can deal with, in this case, the depression. And that was the signature issue of that day. It is not now, but it could be again. I mean, you, know, you just never know.
0: Does the court have to have nine members? Is no, in, in fact, that's actually—I mean, no. the,
2: the, the Constitution says says nothing other than there is there should be a Supreme Court. And actually, before the Civil War, the number of justices fluctuated because uh, Congress uh, changed the numbers. In fact, Congress hated Andrew Johnson so much, President Lincoln's successor. I don't that, admire him all that much myself. Well, because yeah, you haven't seen the musical. Oh, no, that's a different one. Um, the, the, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that um, when a Supreme Court justice died during Johnson's presidency, Congress just cut the number of justices on the court, so he didn't, he didn't have one to fill. Ever since President Grant, it's been nine justices, and I think one of the legacies of FDR's court packing plan is no one is ever going to mess with the number of justices. Although ever it's again. eight
0: now, which means that we're going to see a number of ties, and when we see a number of ties, that means that whatever was in has already been decided by a lower court stays in effect.
2: Yes, in that. Jurisdiction in the circuit where the court decision has been made. Supreme Court decisions cover the whole country. There are 12 circuit courts of appeals and a, and a, a decision that is affirmed by an equally divided court, a five four-to-four to four decision. It becomes the law of the land, but only in that circuit, not in the whole except,
1: country. Except if what the case was seeking to do was to overturn some Supreme Court precedent so that we had a very important labor case that was affirmed by an equally divided court, where the conservatives clearly were headed toward reversing a 30-plus-year-old precedent. And uh, when Justice Scalia died, they lost their fifth vote. And now, depending on who fills that vacancy, that precedent, at the moment, it remains the law of the land for the whole country. And it's in jeopardy. Uh, Labor could lose an enormous amount, depending on what the vote is of the next person named to the Supreme Court, because this issue will come back.
0: Now, during his time in the court, Antonin Scalia was seen as the intellectual force behind the original school of thought. How much do his opinions in actual voting history reflect an originalist viewpoint? A lot. Well,
1: well, yes, and I mean, he he once said about something that uh, somebody asked him about something that Justice Thomas had said, and he said, Justice a, Thomas uh,
0: spoke.
2: Now, now, now. let's he, be no, uh, na- yeah, no nastiness yeah, from you. So Lopate. that he said
1: in some speech or written in something, and he said, um, uh, "I'm a conserv, I'm an originalist, um, but I'm not crazy." And whatever it was, and I wish I could remember. Was, I can't in, remember it what it was. It was in
2: my book, Nina. I All was right, there okay. when so he what said was, it. So he what said, was "I'm it? an originalist, but I'm not a nut." That was the exact. He said it in a synagogue on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Um, it was not a, a reference to a specific case. But it was a reference to general legal philosophy. Some, uh, th- someone in the in, in the audience asked him, "How would you draw the difference? What w- how would you describe the difference between your judicial philosophy and Justice Thomas's judicial philosophy?" And and, and I think Justice Thomas is is a more extreme conservative than than Justice uh, Scalia ever was. Uh, but you know, just take for example perhaps the most celebrated or notorious, depending on your point of view, case uh, that Justice Scalia ever wrote, which was. Uh, The Heller case about the Second Amendment, which said based on his reading of the original intent of the original meaning of the Second Amendment, uh, individuals have a right to keep and bear uh, firearms. Uh, That was his most originalist decision. Now, if you believe Justice John Paul Stevens, who wrote a dissenting opinion, he said that Scalia got the history all wrong. That's one of the problems with originalism is that we can't. you know, reanimate James Madison and ask him what he meant.
1: Well, not only that, as as Professor Obama noted, at the, you know, when he, uh, when he was talking about originalism, he said the ink was not dry on the Constitution before the very people who wrote it were disagreeing about what they meant. Right. So it's very hard to determine that, and you each side can always marshal some arguments. But Heller was probably the most celebrated decision that Scalia wrote, But if you do what Jeff and I do for a living, and which, thank God, I had done, which is to write obituaries in advance and keep (laughs) writing them, keep updating them, you look at the body of work of a justice, and you see how often he is able to prevail with that point of view. And it was relatively rarely. He was most famous, the most famous quotes other than Heller, and um and the and the case striding striking down the brady law are probably from his dissents and he wrote those dissents hoping that they would someday become the law of the land and they may or may not become the law of the land but that's why people write fiery dissents hoping that they will change the direction of this ship of state called the interpretation of the constitution
0: we're hearing all sorts of uh, phrases used to defend the Republican Party's position on uh, whether to uh, vote for, uh, allow a new Supreme Court justice to uh, be voted on, a lame duck, which is being misapplied. Uh, Joe Biden says there is no Biden rule. But in the end, are the Republicans also risking the possibility that if, let's say, Bernie Sanders wins the presidency, that he's going to come up with a much more liberal candidate? Sure. They are taking
2: that risk. But... You know, they, the Democrats th- would
1: have to take control of the Senate the, first.
2: The Democrats
0: would have to take control
2: of the Senate, and,
1: and <laughs> otherwise, also, could I mean, we I, be I,
0: without, with a Supreme Court of eight members uh, for a very long time? We could do for a very long time. I mean, I I think or, what or people or need to
2: remember is that you know the, the 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 Republicans are now saying, well, the next president needs to have fill this seat, not this president, the next president. If the next president is Hillary Clinton. It's not like the senator's just going to roll over and confirm whoever she puts on there. There's going to be a battle royale no matter who it is.
0: And, Nina, you said or less because some of these uh, Supreme Court justices are rather elderly. We could wind up with a seven- or a six-member Supreme Court?
1: Well, not only are some members of the court older than one might choose to – Think because they're very smart <laughs> and they work really hard and they're re- they have more marbles than I will ever have. But you just can't predict. I mean, who have would seconds. have thought? Who would have thought that Antonin Scalia would be the one who was gone?
0: Nina Totenberg. He's on nobody's list? Nina Totenberg and Jeffrey Tubin, thank you both so much for being on today's Please Explain. It's Thanks, been a lot you. of fun.
1: Thank you, Leonard.